Humans have a really interesting um, and fascinating relationship with time. We love the passage of time when it brings us closer to something that we anticipate with excitement, like a vacation or a new adventure. And then we dread the passage of time when it draws us closer to something that we don't look forward to, don't want to do, or when it means that we can't get something done or accomplished that we want to accomplish. We all have the same 1,440 minutes in the day, 1,440 minutes in a day, to do with what we choose and really what we want to. Now, some people have said, and I have said it myself, I feel like this, that time is not my own. But the truth of the matter is, the time really is ours, and we really do have a lot of choices with how, for the most part, most of us have choices in how we spend our time. I like to compartmentalize my time. So like during the week, the work week, I come to work and I'm in the work zone. I tend to not place appointments, like personal appointments during the work day because I wouldn't be able to get myself back into the work zone very easily. Like my husband goes at lunch and he works out like almost every day at lunch and then he goes back to work. I don't know how he does it. I would work out and then I'd have to shower and then I have to do all of this again before I could go anywhere. It's a choice, I know, but two hours out of my day in the middle of the day to go and work out would be really hard for me to come back here and get back into my work zone. And let's be honest, it's just another excuse not to exercise. <laughs> I also compartmentalize the tasks that I have. Like last week, the very first thing I needed to do and I thought about is, I need to get my sermon outline to Betsy by noon on Tuesday. And then once I had that done, then I could prepare for the Ash Wednesday services on Wednesday. And then after that, I could focus on the assignment that I had due on Friday, and then I could work on my sermon prep. I compartmentalize things. And I like my calendar. I don't know how you like your calendar, but I like to see my calendar in the month view, because then I can see how I've dispersed all my obligations throughout the week or the month. I like to compartmentalize my time. I really compartmentalize my time in a way as an effort to kind of manage and control the anxiety that I get from thinking about all of the things that I have to get done. And everybody is unique. We all manage our time differently, and we all have different perspectives and relationships with time. I think the biggest challenge that we all have to our relationship with time is that we're part of this culture that really values and prizes productivity. A quick Google search of time manage management will put hundreds of resources at our fingertips. You can find time management apps for us as individuals, and you can find time management resources and platforms for businesses. There's websites with research-based strategies to improve and increase productivity. There's online seminars and books, books, four pages of books, own your own time. Um, the seven-minute productivity solution, um, procrastination on purpose. <laughs> it's next on my reading list. <laughs> the myth of multitasking. The myth of multitasking, how doing it all gets nothing done. I actually read that book as part of a, um, a class that I took on brain development. Um, multitasking actually doesn't work. And how about this one, do less. 
<laughs> yes, please. Let's have Eric put that on his <laughs> reading list. But so many resources. We can get so much help in managing our time. The biblical narrative deals with time in significant ways, and it gives us an opportunity to really stop and think about our own perspective and our own relationship with time. As we've progressed through Timberwood's statement of faith, we're invited to reflect on the implications of what we believe to be true about the kingdom of God. Last week, we considered the grace and the freedom that we have when we believe that Jesus Christ died for us and that our sins are forgiven. This week, our statement says that we believe in the personal and imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are the implications of believing in a personal and imminent return of Jesus? We can first take a look at what Luke wrote in Acts chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. In the Blue Bibles, this is on page 909. We're in Acts chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. And when they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So let's set the stage here a little bit. This is after Jesus' death and his resurrection. He had just spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching and ministering to them, preparing them for his ascension into heaven. His disciples had seen many incredible sights, miracles, things that were completely unbelievable, the healing of diseases, the multiplication of food, the control over weather, demons cast out, and the resurrections from the dead. They were still amazed by the power of God they witnessed through Jesus. And they stood gazing in the sky while Jesus ascended into heaven. Not only was this an awesome sight, probably overwhelming for them and even sad because Jesus was leaving them. But then we are told there's these two messengers from God. They appeared to tell them that Jesus will physically return the same way that he left them. This message came from God. The two messengers were sent by God. This is why we can believe in the personal and imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word imminent. What do you think of when you hear the word imminent? Imminent means likely to happen at any moment. Something that is impending. We tend to associate imminence with danger like something physically is about to happen. It's often used in the context of a threat, like bad weather. Our meteorologists can predict things within minutes of when a storm or something's going to strike. We hear warnings about the imminent danger of a blizzard conditions, <laughs> but not here this year, <laughs> maybe other places. We hear of the imminent danger of flooding and tornadoes. But imminence is also hopeful. It's not something that's always dreadful, like childbirth. Childbirth is going to happen. 
a full-term baby is going to be born. It's not going to not happen, right? The womb is a great place. It's super cozy, but it's really only meant to be hospitable for about 40 weeks. Ladies, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I never had a baby for 40 weeks. The longest I had one in there was, uh, I think, 30, or yeah, 38. But 40 weeks. And I understand this idea and this example of um, childbirth falls apart because we can predict, right? We can predict the 40 weeks. But the point is, is that that child is going to come out. It can't not happen. We know it is going to happen. And that's the kind of hope that we have when we think of imminence in a hopeful way. This is part of the good news because we believe in the imminence of Jesus' return. His departure is not goodbye. His departure offers us hope. It's see you later. But what is it that we are anticipating? Paul tells us that in his first letter to the Thessalonians, he doesn't give us all the detail, but he does give us a little bit to anticipate. First Thessalonians, say that 10 times real fast, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 16 through 17, and that's on page 987. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be brought up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Jesus' second coming is not a matter of speculation or curiosity about the details of his return. It's a call to be ready for that day. The trumpet of God will call together to disperse the dispersed people of God. We hear about the trumpet of God throughout the Bible. The dispersed people of, of God are all people. Throughout all of history, from all over the world, who are in Christ. This means all people who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior before their own death. We are told that they will rise first. It's a place of prominence. And it's the promise of the resurrection of the dead. And then those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior and are living will join them in the clouds as they all meet Jesus together. But when? The question has always been when. Paul's writing indicates that he thought that Jesus' return would be in their lifetime because he used the word we, and then we will raise up. We've been waiting a really long time. And let's face it, we're really bad at waiting. We're really, really impatient. We can't even wait 
for the ooey-gooey melted cheese on a piece of pizza that just came out of the oven to cool before we take a bite of it, knowing full well it is going to burn and blister the roof of our mouth. Like, how many times have you done that in your life? You know that's going to happen, but we just cannot wait. We're so bad at waiting. We are so impatient. This is why we always like all the information we can get, all of the details that we can possibly gather. Because knowing gives us a sense of control. And knowing gives us a sense of comfort. Details related to time allow us to prepare for what's coming. Like when we have a due date for something. We know how long we can procrastinate or manage our time. It's unfortunate for those of us who really prefer and like and find comfort in knowing all the details. It's unfortunate that Jesus specifically tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, he says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He says, it is not for you to know. The one thing that we are assured is that Jesus will return, and we will know when, when it happens. And so what about his arrival? Verse 16 tells us Jesus will descend with a, with a command, a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. This event apparently will be sudden, it will be dramatic, and it will be extremely obvious. We will know when it happens. So what will run through your mind when you hear that command and that trumpet sound? Will it be a sense of relief? Or will it be a sense of panic? Throughout history, people have attempted to predict Jesus' return with various timelines and events that will lead up to his return. It seems that believing something about how things are going to unfold gives us a sense of security, a sense of control over the time between the now and then. But believing is not about being able to control something. Believing is about trusting. Timberwood's statement of faith isn't simply a document that lists Christian doctrine. It's a statement of what we believe to be true about the kingdom of God. It's a statement that invites us to participate in the kingdom of God here and now in anticipation of what is to come. When we believe in something, we are invited to participate in something. As followers of Christ, we are called to be act, an active part of what God is doing in, through, and around each of us. When we believe in something, we are invited to participate in something. So what are the implications of Jesus' imminent return? What does it actually mean for us personally? 
maybe it's great. Jesus is my Savior. I know that my sins are forgiven, and I'm good. I'm ready to go. Or maybe it's, I believe, but wait, I still have things that I need to get done or things that I should do, things that I know I should do, but I haven't. I've been procrastinating or waiting. Or maybe it's, wait, being in Christ, that's something new. I want to hear more about that. One of these answers is not better than the other. Because Jesus' imminent return is an invitation for all of us, regardless of where we are in our journey. Maybe you've accepted Christ as your Savior recently or long ago. If you haven't, there's no better, better time than right now to close your eyes and say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I need your grace and I need you in my life. And we can say that over and over and over again. The question for all of us is, how are we participating in what Jesus is calling us to as his disciple? Knowing that he is going to return. Knowing that he began a mission a ministry on earth that he entrusts to us as his followers, what is he inviting us to do? A few months ago, John introduced this concept of liminal space or limin this liminal time. It's this time between what was and what is next. So we've got this space in time. What are we doing in this liminal space? Acts chapter 1, verse 11, seems short. But it also seems like a call to participate in something. The angels appeared and they asked the men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking in the sky? These men seemed to be dwelling on the fact that Jesus was leaving. And we may not be dwelling on Jesus' departure, but I often wonder if, we've, if we have become complacent in knowing that he will return. Believing in the promise of his return is a gift of hope. It's a gift and a space to continue in Jesus' mission here and now. Believing in the personal and imminent return of Jesus is an invitation to participate in what God is doing in us, through us, and around us. It's what he asks us to do in this liminal space between yesterday and when we meet him face to face. What we are doing with this time and with this space that we are given matters. And as we have mentioned several times throughout the week, one of the best ways to discern God's invitation is through spiritual disciplines. On Ash Wednesday, we participated in the discipline of Lectio Divina, or dwelling in the word, or contemplative prayer. 
I would encourage you to participate in the, in the uh, spiritual disciplines that are in the Lenten booklet. Eric did such an amazing job of designing it and planning it so that each day is a new opportunity to participate and anticipate and ask God what he is, an invite, what he is inviting us to. It's an opportunity to discern his activities and participate in what he wants to do in you, in me, through us, and around us. And so I invite you for a few moments with me. Let's close our eyes. And in the quietness of these moments, Lord, I ask you to quiet our minds and quiet our hands. Would you reveal to us the invitation that you have? We know that there is something unique for each of us. Join me in prayer. Lord God, we live in a world that is constantly luring us to productivity and busyness. We ask that you would continue to quiet our minds, open our eyes to the things that distract us, from the goodness of the promise of your return. Lord, would you help us to be centered on your promise? Help us to think of the gift of your time in this space in a new way, as an opportunity to be open to the invitation that we be open to the invitation that would allow you to work in us and through us for your glory. Lord, be with us this week as we contemplate and we think about you, the promise of believing in your imminent return. Lord, give us a vision. Reveal your invitation to each of us. We want to love you and we want to honor you and glorify you in this liminal space that we have here. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Please stand.